This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. This is the Coast and Country podcast from the BBC. You can find the terms and conditions on our website at bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. Today you can hear Open Country with Helen Mark. We're in Hyde Bay, Helen, on the beach, and can you see the two, they look like large flower pots directly in front of you, upside down flower pots. Those are Martello Towers. And they're just before the sweep of the bay, yep. that great arm that goes round to yep. Dungeness where the power station is. Exactly. That's off to the east. Yep. And then back the other way, across a very calm channel at the it moment. Is. Folkestone is to our left and of course 20 miles over that way is the coast of France. You know that antique green glass bottle you get that's mm, what the channel is. looks like, that colour it's quite yes. unusual. Yeah. Well that's that's what we're looking at but I'm going to get the map out, this is one yep. of the Ordnance Survey maps so you can see where we are on the map here. We're up here up at, at Hive. Hive and That's the great it. sweep of the bay. Yes. I look at them too, and to me they're almost a thing of beauty. The lines, mm, the colours, mm. blues, greens, yellows, reds, um, sweeps of yellow sand along the edges there. Yeah. You know, it, it helps me explore the Kent coastline. I'm going to do, first of all, with yeah. Michael George, who's an author. But maps were born not out of trying to help people find their way. They were mm-hmm. born out of fear, weren't they? I think that's right. As you say, you look at this map and we can see here the Romney Marsh, which is to the west of Hyde. And it's today an area of outstanding natural beauty. But if you look down here in this little corner... Danger area. Danger area. And there's a clue, perhaps, to the history of this area and maps generally. The Kent countryside was the first ever map created by the Ordnance Survey. That's 220 years ago, Michael. Yes. And it was because of the fear of invasion. Absolutely right. I'm going to fold it up. The only annoying thing about maps is that they flap furiously in the wind. They do. Fear of invasion. 200 years ago, there was the fear of invasion from the old enemy, France. But that wasn't the first time that we had feared invasion. This coast, the coast of Kent, has been at the front line of England and Britain for 2,000 years. From Roman times, after the Romans left, the Saxons invaded. Henry VIII built a number of castles along the coast, Dover, Warmer, Deal. And all of these castles were built to meet French invasion when Henry VIII decided to split from Rome and say he was going to create uh, the the, the English church. Throughout history, until the last hundred years, um, anybody trying to invade would have to rely upon sail to get across. They would be looking at the shortest route and that would bring them smack bang into the middle of Hythe Bay. And how does our map come into that story? The map of 1801 which was the first Ordnance Survey map, was principally designed to help the military authorities prepare for that invasion when 
and if Napoleon landed on these beaches. But how, how likely was that, Michael? Well, if you ask Napoleon, he would say it was a piece of cake. He referred to the channel as a ditch. Anybody can jump it. And there is no doubt that he coveted England. There is no doubt that at that time, if we had been standing on this beach in 1803, 1804, 1805, we would have been looking at masses of Royal Navy ships patrolling up and down, and behind us we would have seen the building of these Martello Towers and the massive 28-mile-long Royal Military Canal. That's on our side. What was happening on the French side? The troops were gathered, were they? They were. Napoleon assembled a massive army, 175,000 men, and they were all camped along the hills. We can't see them today, the hills, but particularly at night, when all of the campfires of these soldiers were lit, we would be able to sit here and look at that and think, what will we do? It's a tremendous story, isn't it? Oh, it's amazing. The fear that there must have been in the nation, and Mm. one of the responses was to map the land, to map the Kent coastline. Mm. Yes. And, I mean, I can understand why you became so intrigued by the whole concept of this Kent coastline being Mm. a coast of conflict. That's the title of your book. That's what it is. Yeah. That's what it is. Today, of course, it's not. Look at it today. It's peaceful. The sun isn't exactly shining, but it's a very pleasant scene. But it does belie the fact that there are 2,000 years of conflict here. It didn't end with Napoleon, of course. The First World War saw massive army camps built along the entire coast. And even today, if you look at aerial photographs of the Kent countryside around here, you will see the zigzag lines of the trenches as they were during the First World War. All those marks left. Mm-hmm. Was, was the Second World War then, that was the end of it? No more need for thinking about defence along the south coast? Well, the Second World War, of course, was again a time when there was a very real risk of invasion. And Hitler's Operation Sea Lion was uh, remarkably closely related and based upon Napoleon's invasion plans. Even up to the period of the Cold War, this remained an important county and an important coastline, with listening posts built along the coast and underground, and they're still there, a number of Cold War shelters. Well, I'm going to leave you here on the Shingle Beach, enjoying the the scenery, Michael. I'm going to now join members of our modern-day Ordnance Survey to find out how they actually set about making that map. Because it's quite a story in itself. Yes, yes, I'm sure. I've come now to the small village of Ruckinge in East Kent and I've come here to meet some people from the Ordnance Survey to to find out more about this story of how the first map of Kent was created. And I've arranged to meet them at this beautiful Norman church surrounded by gravestones. It's called St Mary Magdalene and we've arranged to meet in the graveyard. I've come here to see Ken Lacey and Melanie Osborne. Why did you bring me to this church, exquisite as it is, Ken? 
This church um, is at the end of a baseline, a uh, precise measurement that we took here in Kent back in 1787. And how long was that line and where did it stretch? It was about six miles and it stretched all the way to the coast right across Romney Marsh. And this is what they call the baseline from which everything else was to be measured? That's right. Well, this, this baseline was a Czech baseline. We had already done one in Hounslow, West London, and this one was to actually check that what the work that we'd done from Hounslow to here was correct. Well, should we take a wander around the churchyard and, and have a look about with, with Melanie? OK, shall we just go over to this uh, stone that we have over here in the seat because this was the uh, approximate end of the baseline. And to celebrate our 200th anniversary, some local school children planted a time capsule under here. And so this stone here shows you where the time capsule was buried. Your anniversary, 220 years mm. since that first map was published. That's right, 220 years. And, and the organisation has changed really dramatically in that time. But it came from that, you know, it's what it was born out of that's fascinating, that people mm. probably just don't realise it was the need to defend the nation. Yes, that's right, and people are very fond of our kind of walking maps and cycling maps and so on and so forth, but actually that's not... We weren't about leisure when we started. We were about defending the nation. Hence, that's why we have ordinance to this day. What did they then create, and, and how long did it take them? They created a map which actually showed all the main roads, the woods, anything that was of strategic importance. We have a sample here of... Um, map that was created of Kent. This was the first produced county. It was published in 1801. Back in, the River Thames is very obvious towards the top of the map. That's right. And um, there are tracings of roads, not very many, no big urban conurbations, uh, shadings where possibly it would have been lots of woodland. <laughs> That's right. So much of that has gone now, hasn't it? And this is a small segment of it and it is absolutely incredible to look at. And I I have to, you know, wonder at how on earth they did it. Like all mapping, it takes an awful lot of effort. Uh, you have to put the structure in, which essentially like a skeleton. Uh, you don't look at your skeleton inside, but it's important to who you are. What did they physically do on the ground? Physically did on the ground, they actually had to uh, uh, take angles of, yes, and take, take, take measurements mm. and oh. the main method of measuring distances was with a chain. So Melanie is unravelling this great long <laughs> chain. This chain that we've got now is a, um, it's about 60 feet long and when they started doing this back in the 1790s and 1800s it was about 100 feet long and so you can see from this chain this is actually quite heavy and when you think about they were carrying this and as well as all the other kit that they had to do and they didn't have roads and stuff like we have nowadays you can imagine how difficult it actually was to do it on the ground. It is a very physical process and just now Ken is now walking back up towards me along the length of the chain and if you think how they had to do that along the entire Kent County mm. um, it, is, it is wonderful what it is that they managed to collate. You had a group of people, you had people on the front of the chain and you had people at the back and the guy at the back would actually align the person at the front here to an object behind them. Now we have the church tower behind us so the guy here would move this person till he was physically in line with that church tower. They would tension the chain and then they would physically mark the end. And once they'd done that, the whole chain would move forward. But what about 
the rivers and the fields and the woodlands and the rise and the fall of the land. I mean, how, how did they do that? On this particular route here, they had it on a wooden support, which was above ground, but that didn't take account of the fact that you had to go through the water, you had to measure across the water, you got wet. You just had to do it. What equipment were they using, other than, say, the chain here? Uh, they were using uh, an optical instrument, a theodolite, which actually helped them point in the right direction, and the rest of it was brawn, just Re- physically just walking miles, marking up, and they had to take the whole uh, theodolite on a cart, a special cart, and it was pulled by horses. It's about getting this picture of these men measuring the landscape inch by painful inch, essentially. That's right. Everything was a huge effort to do, but I would say also highly skilled. Very highly skilled. The work that they did was extremely accurate for the day. When they came to check here in Kent from the survey originally they did in London at Hounslow, they found the difference measuring from both methods was literally 100 millimetres. Oh, my goodness. Um, So that very pleasing. When they got the map, then they knew where they must and could put fortifications in. That's right, yes, and uh, they did a range of things, and one of them, of course, was the Royal Military Canal here. That's just down at the bottom of the field here. We can get to the edge of it, can we? Yes, we can. So built because they had the right geographical information. That's correct. They were able to see that this area around the back of Romney Marsh would create a natural ditch and defence against um, the French army. It would hold them in this area until British forces could actually get here in strength. When we think of you know, defences against Napoleon, we tend to think, first of all, of the Martello Towers, don't we? We do. Not of canals. Well, <laughs> if you like, there's, there's two layers of defence here. The Martello Towers were there on the coast to actually disrupt the French landing on the coast because they were approximately 600 uh, yards between them. They could put raking fire down on the French navy and the army coming ashore. And then if they got past that, then they would come on to Romney Marsh, which is a nice flat area, but we would try and contain them on Romney Marsh and we had this uh, canal here. And this, this was... a. Uh, 28 miles, I think approximately 28 miles length of water. Uh, They originally envisaged it to be about 19 metres wide and they actually had a rampart on this side. This side was where the earth was put so that they could actually hide behind it and defend it. We're looking at the water, Ken, but behind us we have a pillbox from World War II. How and in what way did the Ordnance survey people, you know, have a hand in, in, in other areas of conflict? Well, we've had in the 20th century two wars to end wars, the First World War and the Second World War. In the First World War, Ordnance Survey printed over 32 million maps in relation Mm. to the trench warfare going on on the Western Front. And in fact, at the final push of the British Army in 1918, over a 10-day period, our printing presses produced 400,000 maps so that our soldiers could actually advance. When you think about them, what what are your thoughts about those initial surveyors, having been one yourself, and the work that they did, what they produced? Well, it was out of the top drawer. 
Uh, it was cutting edge for the day. Uh, Ordnance surveys always tried to be cutting edge. Their stuff was right on the edge of technology. But provided the base for what we have today. Yes. I mean, Ordnance Survey is still around 220 years later. We still provide the national mapping function for this country. We still have to keep our maps up to date, so we still have a relevance to today. The mapping of the Kent coastline is not something from that distant past that we were talking about. It's still very current today, which is why I've come to this particular spot. I'm high up on a ridge looking down across Folkestone, and then I have the channel beyond that, and I've just got a little bit of a trace of the outline of France just on the horizon. But Folkestone, it is this hub of transport. I'm looking down at long lines of freight lorries queuing up to go on to the trains. We've got one, two, three, four, at least five railway tracks there. We've got the main roads with the buzz of traffic. And I can see them going back up into the countryside to the west. And then if I go and look towards the east, you're heading right down into the depths of the Channel Tunnel. And it's new. It's very, very new. So it all had to be surveyed. Mark Robson, a surveyor with Ordnance Survey, this was one of your little babies, was it? Yeah, um, when I came down to Kent in 1992, the construction was underway then, but this was one of the jobs uh, I was the first involved with. And this actual point, we occupied this quite a lot. As you can see, you can see a broad sweep of detail. And when you call points, we have this concrete cylinder in front of us, just right on the edge and, and they are familiar to us as walkers, aren't they, these little yes, trig points? Yes, yeah, yeah. So even though we don't, Ordnance Survey doesn't use them anymore, some are still maintained for navigational use. I think that people actually adopt them. Yes, <laughs> I think they're, they're comforting to see in the yes. landscape, first of all on the map, and then when you actually physically reach them. So it's important that they stay there. It doesn't matter that they're not that's used right, by, you, right. by you anymore. That's right. And it's all about measuring the landscape and recording the changes, yeah. collating that and sending it back to base. It used to be because back back then the data we collected would have to be sent to headquarters to be um, computed. But when we went on to survey the um, high-speed rail link several years later, by that time, US military had um, de-restricted the GPS signal from their GPS constellation so GPS could be used as a survey tool. So when we did the high-speed rail link, we used the equipment, you can see here, mm-hmm. a backpack receiver on a pole. So it had gone from a three-man job to a one-man job. Shall we take the, yeah, the, the yeah. kit and, and you can show me as we go along what right, it so, is that you do? So when I, when I go out to a site, I turn the equipment on in the car and it's only um, a couple of minutes before I get the uh, correction signal sent to me. Mm-hmm. I have the backpack here with the, uh, the GPS equipment in there and it's got all software that knows the position of where the satellites are in the orbit and everything. So it's Just into a tiny little lunch lunch yes. size rucksack I have to say that that's up. right and it's got a pen tablet it's like a little mini computer yeah. there on the pen tablet I've called up the data the pocket of data where the change is on the map so if it's a new housing estate I'll call that area of data up this goes on my back and although you're being very high tech there yeah. actually what you're going to do is very much like the earliest surveyors had to do that's right you're that's going right. to have to walk Yes, and we have, we have all this clever equipment, but some days we still just go out with a tape measure, the old-fashioned way. I know there's a lot of aerial photography done as well. Yeah, there's a lot of aerial Just as you're firing that up. But I'm looking around me and, and we've got, um, you know, shrubs growing down the, the face of this edge. 
And, you know, photography is never going to tell you exactly what lies there in the lie of the land. Well, we Do have you a, have to scramble about a bit? Well, we, we have a sort of specification of detail that we pick up. And as well as the, the road curb lines, we're picking up road routing information. So we're picking up road restrictions, traffic calming, all information that finds its way into the TomTom uh, -tom in car navigation systems. Oh, I see. So this, you have to collect that all the time on the yeah, ground because it's constantly changing. That's right. It's information. Keep it up to date. It's information that's used by the emergency services. It's vital kind of information. You, you know, it needs to be right. Do you feel a connection at all with the people who first mapped this I do. landscape? When you think of the, the the time and the effort they put into getting it absolutely spot on, all the, the three hundred surveyors feel the same. We when we go out every day, we try and do a hundred percent top quality job it is impressive isn't it this view you've brought me to yeah it's so dominated by man it is it is completely built upon i don't know if you can pick it out but down just about a km off the coast of Littlestone down there there's an old um floating harbour that they were coming across to, for d-day that one got left behind i think there was a storm and it broke off so it's uh, been set off the coast there ever since so when i came down here i thought well it's i'd, I'd consider that a permanent feature so I had some contacts in the lifeboat, our LI. So we uh, arranged to be taken out there to put it on the map. So we had one of the, one of the lads on the shore with a theodolite, and I went out in the inshore lifeboat, jumped in the sea with a big hairy lifeboat man, and then we swam out to it and uh, held a reflector on the corners and plotted it on the map. It's nice to see that when you've surveyed something in your day-to-day -day work and it eventually comes through into the 1 to 50,000 or 25,000 mapping, and you can think, I did that. <laughs> Yeah. So it's constant, ever-changing. It is, yeah. yeah. You know, the, the amount of changes that are recorded every day by the 300 or so surveyors, it's uh, incredible, like, you know, day in, day out. We're just on the edge of the Folkestone Downs. I've come back to this column of cement that is the triangulation point here, looking down over the city of Folkestone. And I'm once again with Melanie Osborne from the Ordnance Survey. There was, when that first map was made, a need. there was an urgency to get mm. that map made. Is there still, you know, an urgency to keep up to date for oh, your maps? Absolutely. And the surveyors on the ground would say that's probably what drives them to get out every single day, come rain or shine, to, to update the country. What urgency? Well, we make about 5,000 changes every single day to the, to the Master Map database. So there's a tremendous amount of change going on across the country. And that's needed by a whole range of our customers. So if you've got a new house or a new development and you need an ambulance or a fire engine, they need to know how to get you and they need to know how to get you as soon as you're there. So great developments that go on, like the one we, we, we've seen here and Mark was talking about how it was mapped. What's a good example of that? Well, another good example of a prestige site that we've been working on is the Olympics uh, development site in, in the east end of London. And we've been flying that on a six-monthly basis to make sure that we... Flying over it. Flying over that, taking aerial photographs to make sure that we can incorporate the change as it's going on. That's really important for people like the police and for the Olympic Development association who will be able to use our data to plan how they're going to get all the people into the stadiums how they're going to get them out what would they do if there was an emergency and they needed to evacuate a site do you think the day will come when we will see the end of paper maps 
No, I don't think so. Um, people generally love our paper maps. People can find their way about using, you know, satellite systems now. You know, they may say, well, I don't need a map. <laughs> yeah, mountain rescue organisations are forever saying, if you're going up a mountain or if you're going up onto the hills, don't just rely on a handheld device. Make sure you've got a paper map because inevitably the batteries go, you don't get the reception. At least when you've got a paper map, you can kind of work out where you are. Yeah, your life could depend upon it. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And we've seen examples of that. And you could be travelling around using great technology, but sometimes you don't really know where you are. You're not lost, but you don't know where you are. Yeah, I think that's, that's why you need a map. I think that's another interesting <laughs> thing about a sat-nav. Is a sat-nav is great for getting you from A to B, but it doesn't get you the context of what's around about. And you're watching where you're driving, but also where you're going, but you don't see what's behind the hill or on the other side of the street. So you lose a lot of context and you lose a lot of, kind of knowledge about the country, really. The story, mm. the stories of the landscape, that they are on those beautiful maps that were first handcrafted, you know, based on the information mm. that was gathered physically. Let's just take this county of Kent. Mm. You know, that, that, that painstaking procedure to put information on paper for people. Well, we still have it, thank goodness, don't mm. we? We do. And even in a digital format, it's still the same data. It's just being used in a different, more modern way.